The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. family curse. In November 1776, in Santi Apostoli, Venice, insomnia claims its first victim. A parish priest recorded the cause of death as an organic defect of the heart's sac. The deceased, a doctor, had symptoms such as shortness of breath. His suffering began nearly a year prior to his death, ending with his last two months spent paralyzed in bed. I find the idea of the final months of someone suffering from the fatal prion disease to be terrifying. Trapped in your body, unable to sleep. What do you see? What's left of your mind? Is it shattered? The good doctor wasn't the only person in the family to suffer from fatal insomnia. No, it seemed to be a hereditary curse that several descendants suffered from as well. In 1827, a teenage boy named Costante, the son of the good doctor's nephew, fell ill, at first with fever, but his symptoms would steadily grow worse. Months passed like this. Eventually, the hallucinations came, and the young, fatal familial insomnia rears its gaping maw as mental illness. The boy was frantic, not able to understand what was happening. How could he? And then there were, of course, the screams. The town witch was called. These folk healers, also known as cunning folk and benedanti, which translates to good walkers, were viewed differently than how we view the witchcraft today. The Giratori were considered healers, though they were relegated to living at the edge of town. The witch shined her light into Costante's room to expel the Messorali. Of course, this didn't help. Costante's search for sleep would continue, 
The search would be in vain, and the boy died in 1828. The cause of death was recorded as pellagra, or low levels of vitamin B3. It's likely the priest that recorded the death didn't know what he was dealing with and did his best to provide an answer for a grieving family. The boy's father, Giuseppe, didn't have long to mourn. The night sweats and fevers came first. Then, one day, without realizing, he woke up for the last time. Giuseppe was diagnosed with malaria, but all the quinine in the world couldn't have saved him. It wasn't long before he was reunited with his son. Giuseppe had two children who lived on, one of which, named Vincenzo, inherited fatal insomnia. Vincenzo died from cancer before the sleep disorder could surface, but his children were not so lucky. Of his six children, four were inflicted with FFI. It's at this point with four harbingers of the deadly genetic prion disease that it seems FFI would survive. Its continued existence cemented. Despite being extremely rare, fatal insomnia can and has been found by pouring through the logbooks of baffled health professionals. In 1910, a German doctor named Hans mistakes FFI for pellagra as his 93-year-old patient shambles through hospitals and fills its halls with whales. Her thoughts fragmented. She screams that she's a murderer. Eventually, she loses the ability to walk and is bedridden. Finally, relief comes in the form of a coma. Death soon follows. It's the Germans who begin to put the puzzle together. They find similar symptoms. Inability to sleep, high blood pressure, excessive sweating, trouble swallowing, fever, rapidly progressing dementia, and tortured screams. They find that their patients trend towards middle age or older. Most bafflingly, they find that many of their patients come from the same bloodline. Born in 1894, Pietro became a politician at 26. It wasn't easy, because there were hushed whispers about his family. His lineage was one filled with mental illness, physical illness, and death. There were those alive who had seen his family members at their lowest point, wailing in terror, incapable of sleep. However, through his charisma, good looks, and a little luck, Pietro found himself respected and married. Pietro had five children, four girls, a Selena, Tosca, Irina, and Assunta, and one boy, Silvano. In 1944, at the age of 50, Pietro found he had a fever and was diagnosed with an ear infection. After spending a day resting in bed, Pietro was satisfied with this diagnosis and went back to work. However, Pietro soon realized he was suffering from another symptom. He couldn't sleep. After days passing without rest and his fever worsening, the family doctor seemed out of options. So, Pietro sought out a respected doctor in Venice. Pietro left Venice with a knot in his stomach after a Venetian doctor explained he needed to observe Pietro for 72 hours. Pietro was the sole breadwinner of the family, and they couldn't afford him being away for three days. Still, Pietro would find himself in a hospital shortly after. In the hospital, Pietro found his mind was slipping. His thoughts were fractured, and his fever continued worsening. Often heard muttering to himself, Pietro could be found staring through people, not at them. 
At the hospital, bombs began to fall. The staff immediately evacuated to the bomb shelters, as well as the patients who couldn't move. It was 1943, and it was turbulent times. It was the beginning of the World War II Italian campaign that would last until 1945. Pietro himself was not so lucky. At this point, he was bedridden. But, in some ways, he was luckier than others. A loving family, they stayed behind to hold him as the bombs fell. Though Tosca, his second daughter, was not there, Pietro claimed he saw her. Pietro became more erratic as the days continued. He fell into micro-sleeps, in which his body would twitch involuntarily. He would climb in and out of bed rapidly, whipping the blanket and bed sheets on and off the bed. He began to chain-smoke, nervously snapping the bedside lamp on and off. The light flickering, creating a hypnotic scene of strobe, dead-eyed Italian man, sat up in bed, surrounded by a sickly cloud of cigarette smoke. Sometime later, Pietro was transported back to his home. It seemed the hospital staff could do nothing more for him than try to make him comfortable. Pietro lay in bed, eyes shot open with a concerned expression, tongue fat and now unable to swallow. His stomach was now horrifically distended, his breathing a pained rasp. A priest was brought to the home, and Pietro was given his last rites. Early in the morning, on June 19, 1944, Pietro's ordeal finally came to an end. The family heard a loud clattering upstairs. It was Pietro's bed shaking as he spasmed, jerking so hard that when his eldest daughter arrived upstairs, he had to be held down. Isolina kissed him for the final time, before Pietro could speak to his wife, who was standing by, the death rattle came. He and his family were separated by eternity. Not long after, one after another, fatal insomnia would claim Pietro's sisters. Angelina, Maria, Emma, and Irma all died within a span of a couple decades. You know, if it just existed in the past, with nearly a century between cases then I have to wonder if fatal insomnia would have been considered a type of mass hysteria. The Dancing Plague of 1518 is a prime example. 400 people in the Roman Empire danced for days on end, some unable to stop, collapsed, and died. The Dancing Plague lasted for 30 days, and one day, just fizzled out, the leading theory being mass hysteria. You see, because evidence of the Dancing Plague only exists as engravings, Without video documentation, the idea of deadly insomnia just doesn't feel tangible. Like a bad 70s movie plot that belongs on the shelf next to Deathbed and The Car That Ate Paris. But, returning to where we started, we're lucky enough to have actual footage of FFI. And it's all thanks to Savano. If you're an astute listener, you may have recognized that Pietro had a son named Savano. This is, of course, the same Savano who allowed himself to be a guinea pig. Part 2. A Dark Inheritance 1983, Bologna, Italy Now with permission to record Savano, Dr. Ignazio Reuter began to document everything. Though Savano couldn't sleep, he could dream. Randomly, Savano would perform various gestures, such as brushing his hair with a phantom comb, buttoning up his already buttoned pajamas, 
or giving military salutes. When asked why he was performing these gestures, Silvano told the doctor that he was dreaming he was a god at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. It seemed that Silvano would find himself caught in a stasis of REM sleep. During REM sleep, your brain experiences nearly the same amount of exhaustion as it does during sleep when you are awake. Unfortunately for Silvano, REM sleep is a place of dreams, not rest. So, for poor Silvano, seeking refuge in REM sleep would be like trying to put out a roaring fire with a cold mist. Specialists came from far and wide to see Silvano with their own eyes, all left baffled by what they saw. After eight months, nothing remained of Silvano's mind. He was described as an empty torso, a vessel without thoughts. He writhed and twitched, sometimes even spasmed in bed. And then one day, after weeks of convulsing and hyperactivity, the torment was over. He was gone. It's worth noting that Silvano not only allowed documentation of his disease, but he also donated his brain to science. You have to give it to the man. Like his father before him, he didn't go without a fight. 1991, New Lenox, Illinois. When I was a child, I remember seeing a television program that featured the story of Michael Cork, and the memory has always stayed with me. I can't remember the name of the program, but it's pretty much what led me to making the episode you're hearing today. I remember laying in bed that night, terrified I wouldn't be capable of falling asleep. Being a child, the obvious solution seemed to be squeezing my eyelids tight enough for them to burn. In 1991, fatal insomnia found its way into the United States when it afflicted the aforementioned Michael Cork. Michael, a music teacher, had just turned 40 years old. His insomnia first cropped up as a few sleepless nights, but eventually progressed into absolute sleeplessness. Penny Cork, Michael's wife, had this to say about the progression. I knew he couldn't sleep. I laid with him every night, and he would toss and turn, and just lay there. He would wake me up in the middle of the night and yell at me and tell me that I was snoring and to turn over. One night, he yelled at me and said we just couldn't sleep together anymore. So I said, fine, I'll go sleep in the living room. And I did. For ten nights. And his sleep wasn't any better. I got him a special type of sleeping pillow. It didn't help. He was losing physical vitality. There came a time I would have to shower him and dress him for school. What it did for his independence and ego was difficult for us both to handle. The initial diagnosis was multiple sclerosis, or MS, and sleeping pills not only didn't help, they made matters worse. At a school concert Michael conducted, he hadn't slept for two weeks. By then he was carrying a cane to aid him in walking and struggled to step up onto the school podium. Not long after Michael began to experience hallucinations, his mind receded and it seemed to family members that he was living in the past. One day, at the dinner table, he asked his mother where his grandmother was, why she wasn't at dinner. Michael had forgotten that his grandmother had been deceased for 16 years. After Christmas that year, Michael Cork was admitted to a hospital. What you're about to hear is audio of Michael in the hospital. The audio may be considered disturbing for some. How long have you been here? Hmm? Yeah. 
How much? Two weeks. Okay. Um, you're a, a music teacher, right? What do you teach? Instruments? Can you say it? What instrument? What instrument? <laughs> Clarinet? When you wake up, do you feel refreshed like you should? You do. You feel good in the morning? Because your EEGs look like you're not sleeping very well. Michael's form of communication at this point were grunts, nods, and mumbles. His eye movements were sporadic, sometimes slanting them, sometimes going cross-eyed. He seemed dazed and in and out of awareness. After six months, Michael Cork was in a near-catatonic state. Powerful drugs were given to him, but nothing would allow him to sleep. It was around this time that he was diagnosed with fatal familial insomnia. It is around then that family members find out a disturbing figure related to FFI. A parent with the mutation that causes fatal insomnia has a 50% chance of passing it down to their children. Because of this, Michael's family members were tested for the disease. Michael's sister, Joanne, received a negative result. When researching FFI, I ran across some comments online from people who knew Michael. The first, from a commenter that claimed to be his sister, wrote, My name is Joanne Kirk Mosby. Michael Cork was my brother. He was 42 when he died. The gene was confirmed to be from our natural father's side of the family, from who we were estranged. The family name was Thomas from Milford, Illinois. We have now lost two cousins, Chris and Casey Bassam, and a second cousin to this terrible disease. I continue to try to find my half-brothers, as they may carry this gene and have no knowledge. They are the sons of Earl Thomas, formerly of Milford, Illinois. The comment at least seems authentic. It'd be a hell of a troll to write a comment that detailed about such an obscure case. Another commenter, supposedly Michael Cork's stepdaughter, had this to say. I have been to the site many times, checking on the comments and unsure whether I should post something. I am Mike's, this is how I knew him, stepdaughter. He married my mother when I was 13 and passed away when I was 19. Mike was always kind and patient with me. This is saying a lot considering I knew him in my teen years, which I certainly do not consider my most lovable. Toward the end, while he was still working, I would drive him and often pick him up from school since he was unable to drive safely. I am glad I had that time with him, though, even though he spent much of it trying to sleep or in a bit of a daze. Losing him and watching him suffer was devastating for me. My brother, most importantly my mother, she was never the same after his death. I hope no one else in the family develops this disease. My mother died this past December, and I hope they are together again. He was a good man. Joanne, Michael's sister, followed up with, I continue to try to find my half-siblings, not to find family, but to warn them about what they may endure. It is almost 17 years since Mick passed away from this little-known disease. This blog, as well as a few others, has helped the family immensely in getting information out on the disease, as well as enabling those that cared about Mick to reach out to others. It is my hope that this blog will continue to be available to those that wish to comment on Mick's life or disease. To Carrie and Lee, I'm sorry that you have lost your mother. I am sure that she and Mick are again together, and now they both sleep in peace. 
My family appreciates your kind words about your relationship with Mike. To him, you were not his stepchildren. You were his children, and he loved you both. Other commenters on this same site claim to have attended Michael Cork's music class. I'm not going to read these comments, as Michael has long since passed, and there's no way to confirm if the comments are true. To summarize, the main subject of the comments is that Michael Cork was a strict teacher with a bit of a temper. What confuses me is nothing in the comments is particularly damning. Humans seem to just be highly capable of carrying a grudge. To go to a comment section where a family is mourning their loss and to bring up old grievances about a strict teacher seems petty on a magnitude I've never before seen. Alone in a Chicago hospital, Michael Cork passed away at the age of 42 after battling fatal insomnia for six months. January 2003 Maine. Rick White, an assistant news director for WABI-TV, is considered the brains behind their programming and had the ability to work within rigid deadlines. He was given the position just two years before and was respected among his colleagues. But one day, Rick seems to drift, to lack focus. Rick himself recognized this and was apologetic about falling behind. Co-workers noticed that Rick had taken to having coughing fits. The cough just didn't go away, and then he started having pains in his legs. And then just, they think they'd all just come together. It was bizarre that nothing was working, and I don't know, something inside of me went off and said, this is it. Dad's got it. Rick wasn't the first in his family to be diagnosed with fatal insomnia, Like Pietro, it was a family curse. Rick's uncle, Donald Adams, succumbed to the disease. And then Judy Adams, Donald's wife, watched in horror as both of her children, Donnie and Debbie, passed away from the disease. Listener, as I'm sure you realize by now, fatal insomnia is not an easy death for the victims or their loved ones. The many tragedies Judy has lived through are difficult for me to fully grasp. After being diagnosed, Rick White lived for another nine months. Rick died on September 28, 2003. An obituary online reads, They say everything happens for a reason, but I can't think of why God took you away from us. Every day we think of you. Every day you're in our hearts and minds. We can't believe it's only been a year. We miss you. Love your wife, Joanne, your daughter, Megan, and your son, Andy. To make matters more tragic, Rick White's surviving children, of course, have a 50% chance of inheriting FFI. Queensland, Australia. In 2012, Haley and Lachlan Webb were told that their mother had six months to live. Their mother was diagnosed with fatal familia insomnia. It was Haley's birthday. Her mother experienced many of the symptoms we've already discussed. By now, they should be familiar. Getting her children's name wrong, hallucinations, and of course, a complete lack of sleep. In July 2012, their mother passed away. Haley and Lachlan were initially made aware of the 50% chance they had of inheriting fatal insomnia when their grandmother passed away from the disease. So, in 2016, after making a trip all the way out to San Francisco, California to receive testing, they received devastating news. Both had inherited the mutated gene. 
While their grandmother passed away at 69, their uncle died at 20. The siblings hope that when the family curse comes, that's when they're older. And if it's not been made clear enough, there's currently no cure for FFI, meaning one day, without warning, each will likely receive their last night of rest. It's worth mentioning that there is another, more sinister version of fatal insomnia. Sporadic fatal insomnia, or SFI, is a form of fatal insomnia that doesn't need to be inherited. A woman named Diane Stroiling from Provo, Utah, was initially diagnosed with a form of rapid dementia, called CJD. It started with a physical decline. Family members noted that she had trouble walking down the stairs. She struggled making cookies with her granddaughter, and, eventually, her memory started to go. Diane saw multiple doctors, but none of the treatments for these misdiagnosed diseases worked. On July 30th, 2005, Diane's daughter gave birth to her third child. Two hours later, Diane Stroiling died. It was in Diane's autopsy that it was found that Diane had sporadic fatal insomnia. She is one of only eight reported cases in history. There is a light at the end of this dark tunnel, though. How bright a light, I leave up to you. Sonia Vallab, back in 2011, found out she had FFI. She had recently graduated from Harvard Law School. After receiving the terrible news, she made a remarkable decision. Sonia wasn't going to passively succumb to her new disease. She was going to fight. So, she and her husband, Eric Minkle, an engineer, switched careers. They both became scientists and are trying to find a cure. On switching careers, Sonia had this to say, It all happened really fast. I was a recent law school graduate... Now I felt I needed to take a sabbatical to become as informed as I can about the disease. And around that time, we both enrolled in night classes as well as in subjects like biology and neuroscience. Reading that makes me feel like I need to motivate myself to accomplish more. I'd wager not many people can call themselves lawyers and scientists. The two created a nonprofit organization called Prion Alliance. And honestly, if you're going to donate to a cause, This doesn't seem like such a bad one.